Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That's the key text of this 11 verses we'll be looking at this morning. And by way of introduction to this text, I'd like for you to know how I came to it. I didn't just open my Bible and there it was. And the special message they had preach on this. It's been a very tough year for our family. We've known much suffering. We have had the death of a loved one. Major surgeries for my wife with much chronic pain. My oldest daughter, who's not here, she's working at the hospital today, was diagnosed with liver disease and will probably need a transplant uh, in the years to come, on the early, sooner rather than later. She's had two major surgeries herself. She's recovering from the second one. And though it's the least of our troubles, my own health has required two emergency room visits, one hospitalization in the past six months. There are other issues, but you get the idea. We have a large family, <laughs> and a lot of stuff happens in a large family. Well, some of you, many of you, have experienced your own difficult trials and tribulations this year. So likely we all have the opportunity to comfort one another with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. In May of this year, when we were probably at the apex of our difficulties for the year, I set my heart to read the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 17, each day for 30 days. I knew these scriptures well enough to turn to them for my own personal strengthening. They are, as many of you know, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ the very night before his own terrible suffering and death. He's speaking to his disciples in the most endearing and I might add challenging words concerning their endurance and faith. In John 16, 1, Jesus says to his disciples, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus already knew that Judas was in the process of betraying him. Even as he spoke, His words were for the other 11 disciples. He knows they are distraught. These were all young men, men who were about to undergo the most severe trial of their life, their short lives. They know, at least they have been told, that Jesus is soon to be killed. Not sure they were believing it yet. They really don't understand what will come next. Sort of like you and I. Jesus' words are intended to strengthen them as they would, so they would not become discouraged, despair, and be defeated spiritually. He begins his final instructions to the disciples in chapter 14, verse 1. By saying, let not your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe in me. And that's an imperative. It wasn't just making a suggestion. Believe in me. 
In verse 24, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In chapter 16, verse 22, he says, You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. This is truth for troubled times. This is a major reason that these chapters are so special to me and likely special to many of you. The text has a lot to say about having our joy in this life and in the next life made full. Jesus says, as the man of sorrows, he tells his disciples, I know your sorrow. I know your troubles. I want you to know my joy can be yours, even in the midst of your troubles. Well, that's the focus of the message from God's word today. God's word, abiding in God's word, and the love of Jesus Christ as the very foundation of our joy in this life and in the life to come. In this message, I want to put our attention on the personal close relationship we can have as believers in Christ. Oh, there's much in these passages about bearing fruit. And bearing fruit for Christ is, in fact, a major way that we can have joy in serving him. But I'm not going there this morning. I'm going to be talking about the relationship that is brought about by abiding in Christ, what it is and how you can achieve it, and most of all, how to sustain it. Let's now go to the upper room and visit with the disciples and Jesus as he's speaking. And he's really speaking to all of us as well. And that's the reason the word has been preserved, even unto this day, that we may take heart from the words of Jesus. We look first at the first point, first truth of the message, that Jesus commands his disciples to abide abide in me. Now, you may not be thinking much about Jesus commanding in the sense of a military command, But he knew his disciples were distraught, and he's getting their attention. He's telling them he's he's about to depart. But yet he's now saying to them, even as he's on the eve of his departure, abide in me. Verse 4, it says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you, unless you abide in me. If you want to have joy that Jesus gives, even in trouble, Jesus is saying, you must abide in me. Well, the meaning of of this phrase, abide in me, it's simple and straightforward. It means to remain. Abide means to remain or to continue or to stay. Jesus says, remain in me, continue in me. It's the opposite of falling away. To doubt him, to become discouraged, to not depend upon him, to lose your joy, to lose your peace that you can have in Christ, to fail in the very purpose for which God has called you. Well, in the context of Jesus' words in this chapter, the clearest meaning of abide uh, throughout this chapter, he says, remain with me. And it's almost like a contradiction. You're, you're saying you're going away, but you're saying remain with me. And 
the disciples are already confused. <laughs> but Jesus continues to teach them, even in these last days. He's telling them you must maintain a personal, close re- relationship with me. This is not a call to salvation. This is a call to draw near to Christ. Well, what's the importance of this? It's obvious in a sense, but abide is a Greek word. It's a very short word, so I won't go along with that. It's meno, M-E-N-O. And that word does mean to remain or to abide. It's a course of verb. We learned in our ninth grade English classes that verbs are action words. So when he says, abide in me, he's calling the disciples to take action. Now, this word is special. It's used some 40 times in the Gospel of John. 11 times in the 15th chapter. It's also used 27 times in John's epistles. It's a special word to him. John is called the beloved disciple. The one who reclined on Jesus' chest at the Lord's Supper. He felt a special closeness, and it comes out in his writing, doesn't it? Well, the duration is not really given uh, in the sense that it's not present tense. The, the verb is an aorist imperative second person. And you might say, wow, but <laughs> there's meaning in that, and I want to share that meaning. This means, the fact that it's uh, an aorist imperative, we've already seen that it's a command, but it means that it's something the disciples must themselves do to continue from this point on, right now, to abide in Christ. He's telling them, do not allow any breaks to occur in our fellowship. Well, it's an exclusive term as well. We see further that fellowship is the topic, but, uh, is the topic or, or, or the heart of Jesus' message by the phrase, abide in me. John makes almost exclusive use of this phrase. You find it in, in very few other places in the other gospels. In me is used 15 times in this gospel alone, 11 times in his epistles. And I, and I point the, the usage out because you can see uh, the, the importance that John attaches to these terms. Of the 15 uses in the gospel, eight occur in chapters 14 through 17. In chapter 15, our text for today John uses the term in me some, some uh, five times. I'm sorry. He uses it five times with the word abide. He uses it six times. Five times it's used with it abide or abide in me. So on the whole, we can say that abide in me means to remain in close personal fellowship with Christ. No other gospel gives such emphasis to such a close personal relationship with Christ. Now, it's also a mutual, it it, it denotes a mutual relationship. When Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you, he's saying this is, a, this is to be a reciprocal or a mutual relationship. If you abide in him, he abides in you. He maintains fellowship, he maintains fellowship with you continuously. But here's the dawning thing. If the fellowship is broken, If you're in Christ and you have become a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, the dawning thing is if the fellowship is broken, 
It's always broken by us. Not by Jesus. Well, let's look next at the importance of abide in me. Once a person has salvation in Christ, nothing is more important than that they remain in this close personal relationship with Christ. Acceptance of Christ for salvation only begins the relationship. Abiding in Christ is what happens continuously once you're a Christian all the way to the time you come home or go home if you don't break that relationship. You know, there's no other religion of all the major religions, whether it's Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, that permit a close personal relationship with God. And we're going to see how that is so as we get a little further. You know, just to illustrate, if you become a Christian and you don't maintain a close, personal, abiding relationship with Christ, it would be very similar to being married and at the altar where you make your commitment and your covenant, leaving the altar and never caring to have fellowship with your spouse or your wife or your husband from that point on. Some Christians do that. They don't maintain the relationship. Now, I will just say this up front. All of us break the abiding in Christ relationship. What's different as we grow in spiritual maturity, we work to main, we see the importance of it and we work to maintain it harder, give more effort, more commitment to it. But even as a brand new Christian, a brand new believer, you can abide in Christ. Well, let's, let's look next at the priority of it. Verse 4 says, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says, you can accomplish absolutely nothing for me unless you remain in fellowship with me. Jesus underscores this truth by repeating it in verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is simple and straightforward. If you're not in fellowship with Christ, you cannot accomplish anything for him. Nothing, naught, zero. You just can't do it. You can go out and serve your community. You can, you can do all the good, take food to the poor. But if you're not in fellowship with Christ, it accounts for nothing. It's not for Christ. Well, let's look at the opposition to it. This is certain. Abiding in Christ, if we're a Christian, is certainly something that we desire. But we won't do it without Major opposition. There are two persons that work in opposition to your having an abiding relationship with Christ. And you are one of them. You may be, as I am myself, the biggest obstacle to an abiding life in Christ. Well, I'm going to spend some time briefly talking about the other person. Jesus knows that there, all there is to know about this other person, this person who is an enemy of our soul. It's an unseen enemy. And Jesus knows that his disciples will do close battle with this enemy. And in a real sense, Jesus is giving his disciples battle orders when he says, abide in me. Close fellowship with Jesus is needed because this very real enemy 
is seeking to destroy them. There's five mentions of this enemy in the hours just before, during, and after the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. In John 13, 2, as Jesus prepared his disciples for the Lord's Supper the night before the crucifixion, we read the devil had already put it into the heart of of Judas to betray Jesus. And John 13, 27 says that at the Lord's Supper, when Jesus gave Judas the morsel of bread, Satan entered him. And Luke twenty two thirty one, just after the Lord's Supper, Jesus said this to Peter, Simon, Simon, double, double use of the name, term of endearment, close personal relationship, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. And Jesus reassured Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know, Peter learned this lesson well. In fact, he wrote it into his first epistle. He says, be watchful in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to destroy. Well, Jesus knew he was going to seek to destroy the disciples. And he will seek to destroy you if you give him place in your lives. The best protection against the enemy is to abide in a close personal relationship with Christ. Well, lastly, not lastly, got one more, two more. John 14.30, Jesus warns his disciples with these words. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world, referring to Satan, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commanded me. That's why he doesn't have a claim on Jesus. Jesus was in the perfect will of the Father. And that's what abiding in Christ allows you to have that same protection. So five times up. I'm not trying to get through. Skip these over. One more. The fifth one. John 17, 15. Jesus is in praying to the Father for his disciples as he closes out this time with them before at at, at the garden. He says, I do to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So five times during just after the Lord's Supper, Satan is the adversary of God is mentioned. Five times, though, Jesus tells his disciples to abide in him, to remain in fellowship with him. The battle with the enemy is a constant of the Christian life. And it's certainly a major reason to abide in Christ. But this is not the most important reason. The most important reason to abide in Christ is that you will come to know Christ. You'll come to love him. You'll come to love his word. And to know the joy that he gives. And this takes us to our second major truth. Jesus explains why his disciples must abide in him. We've already seen two reasons. If you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus, you must remain in close fellowship. First, you can't, you can't bear fruit. You can't do anything for Christ apart from him. Second, if you commit yourself to him, you will be opposed to a very strong enemy of God who seeks your destruction. 
But there's the third reason. The third reason is given in verse 5, and it's because of whom the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he intends for us. In verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, this is a very good thing if you know what it means. When he says, I am the vine, we have to go back to verse 1 to really get the full meaning of that, where he says, I am the true vine. It's because of whom the Lord... Here's, here's five quick things about what this true vine means, what it pictures. It's certainly figurative speech, but it pictures great truths about the deity of Christ. Well, in saying that I am the true vine, Jesus is declaring his deity. Six times before he has used I am statements. This is the, the seventh, last, and final I am. And you're familiar with these, but I, I mentioned them briefly. Each of these declarations when he says I am the true vine reveals something about his deity. And these could make a, a wonderful study all on their own if you've never done it. In 6.35, and these all come from John. John uses this as the structure of his gospel. 6.35, I am the bread of life. In 9.5, I am the light of the world. In 10.7, I am the door for the sheep. We're the sheep. In 10.11, I am the good shepherd the honorable shepherd, the shepherd that lays down his life for his sheep. In 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. In 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in 15.1, I am the true vine. Secondly, we see that he's the great I am of Israel's history. When Jesus says, I am, it's a direct message that he's the God of Israel's history. And and folks, his disciples would have known that immediately. In Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14, when Moses was first called by God to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, Moses didn't want to go. And in verse 13, he asked God, who shall I say sends me? He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, save this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Because he is the great I am, Jesus says, abide in me. Well, thirdly, he's self-existent. And this doesn't come so much from the vine, but it comes from the I am part of his statement. Jesus, as the Son of God, has many divine attributes. But the vine pictures his self-existence, or this statement pictures his self-existence. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, you formed earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. His existence, Jesus' existence, as God the Son, is not dependent upon anything outside of him. He is the all in all. In a theological sense, this is called the aseity of God. He's transcendent above all the creation. There's nothing, whether it be the authorities, the powers, anything in the creation that troubles Jesus in the sense that he doesn't have power over. And yet, he says, abide in me. 
Well, he is, fourthly, the source of all life. And this gets right to the heart of the picture of the vine. This includes both your physical life and your spiritual life. No matter what you read, no matter what you hear or see elsewhere, only Jesus is the source of our life in and with God. There's no other way. In John 8:12, Jesus says this, <clears throat> Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 10:10, 10, 10, he says, speaking of his disciples, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's a reference to the enemy again. But I come to give life and to give it abundantly. This is why Jesus says, abide in me. Fifthly and last, he's truthful. He's the true vine. He's truthful and trustworthy. He is the authentic, genuine Truthful and trustworthy vine. He is the sure and certain vine in which we can fully rely. He doesn't disappoint. No matter what you say you're facing now or what you might face in the future, he will not let you down. He will see you through. You can absolutely depend upon him and the truth of his word. This is why he says, abide in me. Well, this brings us to our third and final point. Jesus reveals how the disciples are to abide in him. We already know why. Now we see how. How do we put this into action for ourselves? Now, Jesus does not leave his disciples guessing about how to abide in him. There are no hidden truths here that only the spiritual elite can understand. This is for every person. You don't need a Bible code to understand what Jesus says here. Jesus explains how we are to abide in him in a straightforward and simple matter in verses 7 through 10. Now say simple, not easy. Simple. Let's take a close look at how we're to abide in Christ. Abiding in fellowship with Christ as his disciple is at its core dependent upon two things, abiding in God's word and abiding in the love of Christ. Well, that's pretty simple. Two things. Well, there's more to it than that, but those are the core things. Let's look at abiding in God's word first. Abiding in God's word enables effective prayer. Jesus says in verse 7 and 8, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You know, when I look back at my pastorate many years ago, I think almost 19 now, the very thing that I failed at was prayer. I was busy, but sometimes I was too busy to pray. And boy, did that produce bad fruit. And... uh now that I'm 69, I look back on these days and I say, I don't know that guy. <laughs> or God knew me at the time, but, I, you know, it's, it's, it's different now. Thank God. Well, here's what abiding in God's word leading to effective prayer means. We're to give close attention to God's word in our life. When he says... 
uh, my words. If you abide in my words, it's plural. And he's, he's referring to the whole of God's word. Everything in the scripture is his word. It's God's word. He's God the Son. So he's telling us to abide in the whole counsel of God's word. And give attention to it by the hearing of it as you're doing this morning. By the reading of it, as I hope you do. By the study of it. By the memorization of it. And nothing gives me more joy to see my daughter teaching her two sons to memorize scripture. And every night they work on their memorization. And I know some of your families do it as well. And then the last, no, not the last, the fifth thing is meditating, thinking deeply on the scriptures. You know, I have thought more deeply about the atonement, salvation, assurance of salvation, and now I'm moving into abiding in Christ more than I have, I think, than any time in my entire Christian life. It's like I had become, well, I know about salvation. Well, the further I got into studying through, the deeper I went and the more I realized I don't really have much understanding at all. Well, the sixth thing is living it. You can hear it. You can read it. You can study it. You can memorize it. And you can meditate on it. But if you don't live it, you're falling short. You're not really abiding in the word if you're not living it. Well, the second thing here is pray according to God's word. We abide in God's word knowing that God answers prayer according to his word. And whatever you, you know, ask whatever you wish. But if you're abiding in the word, you're going to be asking those things according to God's word. Well, let's look next at how abiding in God's word aids abiding in God's love. In verse 9 and 10, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father loved him, he loves us. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That last phrase that keeps you from thinking it's some type of dutiful obedience with no love or joy in your obedience. Keep his word just as he kept his father's word. And he delighted in his father's word. And this is a remarkable truth. You will abide in his love. You will have the same loving relationship with the Father, that perfect love, a complete love, if you abide in his word. Well, there's a couple of conditions here. Jesus lays down this first condition. In verse 10, he says, Keep my word as I have kept my Father's word. These are the same Greek words, terreo, terreo, which means to watch over in the sense of heeding God's word, giving it close attention. If we keep his commandments, if there's a condition there, we will abide in his love. And this, I know, is a tough standard for all of us, but it's not impossible because of God's provision to us. And let's look next at that provision. We have to go back to chapter 14, verses 15 and 17 for that. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is a theme all the way from 14 to 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. He dwells with you and will be in you. 
future tense. But you know what? We're already in the future. If you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit of truth indwells you now. He's called a helper for good reason. Another helper. A paracletos. One who comes alongside. Jesus had been alongside for three years. But he's going away. And Jesus says, I'll send you another helper, another person who will come alongside of you. And that's the Holy Spirit. Well, twice more, and I cover these quickly, Jesus lays down the condition between our abiding in his word and our abiding in his love. In John fourteen twenty one, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him. I will love him. And manifest myself to him. If you keep his word, you're going to come to know Christ. Christ will manifest himself. Not as a vision. But you will come to know the heart of Christ. If you put your heart in the word. Well, in John 14, 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. I added that. That's exposition. That's how he comes and makes his home with us. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, does not give regard to my word, does not tenderly care for my word. And the word that you hear, Jesus says, is not mine. It's from the Father who sent me. Well, lastly, in John 17, 26. Lastly, we'll close in just a few minutes. But lastly, John writes that Jesus prays to the Father for his disciples. Those present, those yet to come. And he describes the relationship he intends the disciples to have. And he says, I in them and you in me. This is to the Father. I, Jesus, in you, the Father, that they may become perfectly one so that, my, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even. As you love me. That's a powerful love to abide in. John later writes this, and we need this text as part of our opening up of this word. He writes in 1 John. Now, 1 John uh, is said to be uh, an exposition of the gospel of John in many ways, at least the 14th. In 17th chapter, he writes this in 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, Christ, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. It's made complete. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, we come to our last point here. It may It may be that you have professed the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, but are not abiding in his word. It could be you're not committed to abiding in his word and keeping his commandments, giving them regard, close attention. Perhaps you've never looked at God's word, the scriptures, and the enabling work of the Holy Spirit within you, Perhaps this seems an impossibly high standard for you to keep. We're going to look at God's remedy next as our last major point. What happens 
What's God's remedy when a believer fails to abide in Christ? Again, it's going to be simple, easy to understand, sometimes harder to do, especially if we do it in our own strength. When a, what about the, the believer, not the unbeliever? This is all about believers in Christ. What about the believer who disobeys God's word? Because we have salvation in Christ does not mean that we lose our sin nature. All of us still have the ability, and I might add at times even the desire to sin. We do. We're prone to wander. Well, what is God's provision for helping us remain in a close personal relationship? To abide in his word, to abide in his love. Now, I want to refer to a book that Howard just recently loaned me by Dr. Earl Rodmacher entitled Salvation. He deals with the problem of sin in the life of those who have professed belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think he does it quite well, and I want to share it with you. Here's what Dr. Rodmacher says. It's in your notes. In view of the devastating effect of sin... How may a regenerate person have assurance of fellowship with God? And he says, he answers that question. God has provided two things to enable us to deal with sin, which disrupts fellowship with Christ. And these two provisions mean that no believer, none, not one of us, who is a believer in Christ need ever be overcome by his or her sin. This is why David, when he confessed the sin of adultery in God, to God, he said, as it's recorded in Psalm 51, Have mercy, O God, on me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Well, it has been said, and I'm not sure who came up with this, that sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. But you know, it is a short way back. To Christ through repenting of our sins and asking forgiveness. The distance is about as far as it takes your knees to hit the floor. It doesn't matter how long you have been in sin or how deep your sin is, it's a short way back under the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, let's close. And I want to usually don't close with one of our sermon texts, but it's so perfect. I close with verse 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the very purpose for which Jesus has been teaching them these truths about abiding. His disciples, as his disciples, you, them, you, are not to seek fulfillment of joy apart from Christ. It can't really be done. To try to is to walk down a dark alley where the enemy waits to steal, kill, and destroy you, your family, your church, or any other relationship or thing you hold dear. And maybe this morning you know that you need to change the direction of your life. It may be that you need to remember that Jesus said that if you're not with him, you're really against him. You're walking in darkness. 
it may be that you need to commit your way, commit again if you're a believer, to the Lord. And if you're not a believer and you've heard these truths and they've spoken to your heart, it may be that this day is the day that the Lord Jesus Christ wants to hear you come to him for salvation, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life in him. Many are seeking the happiness of the world apart from Christ. That is a false hope. To you and to all of us, Jesus says, I will make your joy full. Come to me. This joy comes only from abiding in Christ, by abiding in his word, and abiding in his love. Remaining in it and returning to it when you fall because of sin. If you will practice this, no matter what your circumstances, you will be on the path to having your joy made full. Let's pray. Father, what precious truths from the very heart of Jesus to those who have already committed their way to him. And Father, thank you for the other helper, the Holy Spirit of truth that abides in us to give us a love and an understanding of the word and the strength and the power to overcome sin in our life. Protect us from your enemy. Father, we do want your joy in us made full. Thank you for this truth. In Christ's name, amen.